This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for spending 30 minutes of your precious time with us as we discuss the issues confronting America. Today, we will kick off Mental Health Awareness Month with special guest, former Democratic Congressman Patrick Kennedy, who started the Kennedy Forum to push to standardize mental health care in our country and works with One Mind, the nation's leading political voice on the issue. Welcome, Patrick. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on, especially for Mental Health Month. Yes, yes, yes. So what we'll get into your book and we'll do it talk a little bit about the advocacy, but I wanted to just kind of address the issue that's really at the forefront right now. And this is the the spike in mass shootings and what's been going on there. And we always get in this debate, you know, the gun advocates say, hey, we're not controlling mental illness. We're not keeping an eye on people. And when the other people say, hey, it's the guns and too much access. What do you think from the mental health standpoint can be done to reduce these uh, incidents? Well, I think you nailed it with your question, and that is, what about the mental health? You know, we're fixated on people with mental illness, and the statistics show that uh, they're marginally um, more uh, apt to have uh, some violence, depending on the diagnosis, in, in very discrete circumstances. But the real narrative is that they're much more likely to be the subject of violence and then, but the question you're asking is, what about mental health? Because a lot of these shootings are not uh, really people with a, a severe mental illness. They're just mentally unhealthy people, which could be anybody. So you can't really step back and look at this problem without identifying, you know, all the school-based shootings and, and then right up through the ones that we've seen uh, recently, and they're they're all um, related to the fact that we as a nation have not done anything to really embed good mental health hygiene and a notion of mental fitness into our culture such that we reduce the total number of people who are uh, ready to act out in such a, a dramatic way as to uh, as to kill so many people, and in, in many instances, these are um, instances where the the shooter is also, um, you know, obviously suicidal. But the problem is they take out a bunch of uh, people in the process, and you know, so we sh- there are ways for us to wrap our arms around this problem, and it it will involve, you know, just taking on the overall mental health um, literacy of all Americans so that we're all working on trying to improve our default thinking, so to speak. How do we react and how do we judge where we are in terms of our stability, you know, and people will go up and down on their own. And then let's have an honest uh, conversation about, you know, how accessible are guns because tragically guns are more likely to be used against yourself in suicides and we don't talk about the suicides as much these 
these homicide suicides are obviously what get all the news. Mm-hmm. But but availability of firearms is not good for anybody who has the firearm in their mm-hmm. house because mm-hmm. the t- statistics show 47 times more likely to be used against yourself than someone trying to break into your home. Those are pretty dramatic statistics. So we have to we often have to look at at guns as a public health issue and I'm um I've always been for CDC doing better tracking of all of these various characteristics of these shootings, the availability, uh, the type of situation, and, um, and and essentially we need to take this on f- from a multi-pronged approach. And uh, it's certainly a, a huge tragedy beyond just the terrible uh, toll of the lives lost. This this impacts the psychological well-being of all those communities mm-hmm. that are impacted. And uh, so it is something that represents a huge importance to us as a nation to do a better job at um, doing what we can to reduce the total numbers. We're not going to be able to reduce them all, but I do think we could make enormous progress um, if we really put our mind to attacking this at various and different levels and dimensions. So we had the Indianapolis mass shooting recently. So the man had a shotgun a couple of weeks before his mother called police and said, Hey, he, he's having mental issues. And they came, they took the shotgun from him, but he went out and got several more guns and used them in the mass shooting. And we have a law down here called the Baker Act, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And uh, several, probably more than a dozen states have this law where mental health people, judges, law enforcement can commit you for mental health treatment uh, for 72 hours um, against your will. And uh, what's your, they're, they're trying to expand that here in Florida. What is your thoughts about legislation like that and laws like that? Well, you know, honestly, I think if you look back at the history and President Kennedy, you know, introduced the Community Mental Health Act and it was meant to keep treatment for people with mental illness in their own communities as opposed to being in asylums. All we've done the last 50 years is move people from asylums into the new asylums, which are jails and prisons. And we've just bypassed, you know, kind of meaningful reform that can address the in-between. And the in-between is what you're getting to. And that is, how do we provide um, protection for people from themselves and for others in a meaningful way without sacrificing their civil liberties? Well, one thing that we can do, which we don't do, is after people have first exhibited um, onset of a psychotic disorder or even addiction or, or any kind of mental health disorder, knowing that these are often progressive illnesses, we should get in. And when they are after their initial treatment and they're better, you know, we should have advanced directives. In other words, we should come to them and say, you know what, you've got an illness. It's a chronic illness. It's like diabetes. You're going to have it for life. Now, how do you plan to, to do something about it? Because that case in Indianapolis, like any other case in America, that family knew he had uh, a, a, a pre-existing condition of a mental illness mm-hmm. and the system just didn't respond. And of course the system is only responding when it's after the fact and when it's too late. Um, I think that if you have l- lost your insight into how your illness is affecting you and essentially you are um, uh, 
out there, uh, again, you know, kind of jeopardizing the, the well-being of everyone around you because uh, that's not your civil liberty to be mm-hmm. able to do that. Although mm-hmm. advocates for people with mental illness would say, oh, people have an absolute right to civil liberty. And, and, and the fact is the law doesn't uh, say that. If you're contagious, you have to be quarantined, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think you need to have a longer hold I think mm-hmm. it has to be determined by medical experts. Mm-hmm. I think there needs to be civil liberty, you know, processes to make sure people not, are not inadvertently kind of um, committed by a family member or quote unscrupulous doctor who has ulterior motives. Of course, mm-hmm. that's you've got to protect against that. But I think, by and large, um, we do not have a really uh, well developed family law a civil justice system that can take this on. And frankly, we need it. We need it for our elderly who are uh, going into dementia. We need it for many in our IDD community who um, who need to have that protection and um, need good surrogates. And as trustees in our society, we owe it to everybody to make sure that they are supported. We need it for people like me with addiction mm-hmm. who, you know, the, addiction, the overdose rate's screaming high mm-hmm. and we still kind of let people float mm-hmm. when if we had taken more aggressive interventions, we could be saving their lives and those around them. And I know in my own family, we did a guardianship, which is essentially commitment personally in my own family of our mother, my brother and sister and I, when she mm-hmm. was really in jeopardy of, of killing herself mm-hmm. from her uh, alcoholism and mental illness And she's alive and well today and able to play with her grandkids because we interceded. I'd like to to, for us to be much more proactive in our response to people who are exhibiting um, a lack of insight about the impact of their mental illness and then help them get back into health where they can, you know, predetermine what do they want the next time it comes around the response to be. Um, but but definitely we need to rethink this. It's a, it's a very pressing issue. You had a very interesting statistic in your book where you said half of the people who suffer from mental illness do not get treatment, which is one of the things you're trying to do. Um, is there uh, not an awareness by families and even by the mentally ill that the treatment is there or is it the treatment not there yet? Well, the treatment's not there yet. You know, we're only... Uh, covering roughly about 10% of those who need addiction treatment in this country. Mm. And by the way, of those 10%, I guarantee you even smaller percent are actually getting evidence-based treatment that's going to effectively reverse their addiction, uh, hold it back, and then get them into recovery. So we are in a dire state of emergency as a nation when it comes to our mental health care. We don't have adequate in-network coverage in any payer that mm-hmm. has really has inadequate coverage. And as a society, we've never paid for this. So we shouldn't be surprised that we wake up today after COVID knowing that the next big wave is going to be suicide uh, and an overdose, uh, you know, epidemic and, and increasing disability due to anxiety and depression. And we can't do anything about it because there's there is the inadequate, uh, you know, workflow supply chain to provide the, the backup we need. 
And it's all because we've never paid and put a premium on mental health interventions like we have cardiovascular disease interventions Uh or certainly oncology. I mean, we spent trillions of dollars on cancer. Thank God everyone in my family's had cancer. Uh But let's be mindful that we didn't ask how much that was going to cost when we started the war on cancer. We've started we've spent trillions with a Uh T. And and I can tell you when it comes to mental health, we we spend a fraction a mm-hmm. fraction of what we spend on other illnesses. Uh, and until that changes, we're always going to have this big gap in services. And, you, and you, you described it in your book pretty interesting. You called mental health treatment um, medical discrimination. And uh, you served in Congress for 16 years. You were co-sponsor of the Mental Health and Parity Act of 2008, which requires insurance companies to provide mental health treatment coverage at the same levels as they would a cancer patient or a diabetic you know, someone with diabetes. And you also said like people should be able to go to their primary doctor and sure. get a checkup from the neck up. Um, what made you leave Congress to take on this uh, issue? Well, uh, my own um, mental illness uh, um, and addiction um, was, I, I, I just, it was a progressive illness and I, I didn't find that living the life I was living as a congressman in the public eye and with all the commitments that I had that I could make recovery a priority. And I felt like uh, towards the end that I was really in jeopardy of losing my life due to the illness. And uh, um, I was fortunate to be able to, to leave Congress and to, and I changed everything. I not only changed my lifestyle, my way of life, what I did for a living, where I lived, who I interacted with, everything. I mean, Mm -hmm. and it really gave me a foundation for a new life in recovery where I attended 12-step meetings multiple times a day, Mm -hmm. every day, and and have not stopped in over 10 years, Mm -hmm. um, which I had never really been able to do when I was in Congress. It always seemed like I had more pressing um, issues than my own health. Um, and, uh, and now I get to pick and choose a little bit more what's a priority in my life. And of course, recovery for me is my number one priority. If I don't have recovery, I don't have my wife, my children, any quality of life that I can ever imagine is gone. The moment I pick up a drink or a drug or act out in any other addictive manner. So your uncle, who was President John F. Kennedy, he was really the first president to address mental health. He formed a joint commission on mental health and then gave a critical speech a month before he was assassinated and created the Community Mental Health Act, which provided federal funding for community centers. Do you feel in your work here that you're kind of following in his footsteps? Oh, I hope so. I mean, I think that legacy of the original 1970s 63 Community Mental Health Act, which, as you said, um, was the last bill he signed into law before he was assassinated and uh, which, frankly, complemented the the Civil Rights Act that he had uh, only spoken to the nation about just a few months earlier, talking about who amongst us would trade the color of their skin and be content with those who counsel patients and delay. You know, he felt uh, that people with mental illness quote, need no longer be alien to our affections or beyond the help of our communities. And I think the same, you know, golden rule, what goes around comes around as far as we all are in this together, irrespective of background and, and skin color and so forth. 
is the same when it comes to our neurodiversity and whether some of us have illnesses in our brain versus illnesses in our lungs or other part of our body. We make these very arcane distinctions and then discriminate against people. Um, no one chooses to you know, uh, act out in a way that uh, jeopardizes the love of their family and friends, jeopardizes losing their job, jeopardizes their freedom by getting arrested, jeopardizes their life. And, they, and people with active mental illness and addiction do that on a daily basis. And I guarantee you, it's not a choice that they've made of their own free will. It's an illness of their brain. And um, I was proud that JFK started us down that road, which is really modeled for the last uh, 60 years. And the parity law, which I got to sponsor with my late father, Senator Edward Kennedy, really was about recommitting to that idea that we need to treat mental health in the, with the same urgency that we address the rest of our health. And, and you mentioned your father, and he, uh, he made an unsuccessful bid for president in 1980. And I had a chance to cover him in Congress his last few years. And I, I kind of thought that um, as a senator, he seemed to get a lot more done than maybe he would have as president, particularly in health care and education. Um, do you think that you kind of hope the same thing, more done out of Congress than in? Well, I I wouldn't be making a difference today if I hadn't uh, had the experience of writing the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. That gave me the platform that I, I still enjoy today. Um, I am able to focus on that just kind of exclusively in my mm -hmm. life, which I think gives me a great deal of deeper satisfaction of what I'm accomplishing. And of course, what I'm trying to do is coalesce forces to implement the law that I wrote when I was in Congress. Mm -hmm. And uh, that enforcement it matters. You could have a great law and not enforce it, and what's the use? So um, this is a period of time post-COVID where everyone knows how crucial mental health is to, to themselves and to their family and friends and colleagues. Our business recognizes it. I mean, it's recognized the world round. And so it's long past due that we fully implement the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. People can learn more about it on the Kennedy Forum. Um, Dot org website, but uh, but there's a lot of other agenda items that we need to start to get mobilized for advocacy because one of the things that have kept us back is that because of the stigma of these illnesses, people don't put up their hands and saying, "Oh, I'm a you know mental health survivor." Mm -hmm. They'll do mm -hmm. it for cancer now, and mm -hmm. Lord knows, 20, 30 years ago they weren't able to do that. Mm -hmm. So progress is there, but we still haven't gotten to the demanding the kind of justice for people with these illnesses that we've in the past applied to people with HIV AIDS and cancer and other illnesses we have yet to apply to mental illness and addiction. So you mentioned uh, the overdose deaths. We've had over 450,000 in 25 years. You went through it um, when you were young, very young, when your uncle Bobby Kennedy's son, David, overdosed. What was that like to go through? Yeah, the, you know, the tragedy with uh, addiction is that we all know it but we don't know what to do about it. And we, we think that we're interfering in people's lives, even though we know that they're suffering from the disease of addiction, when we would never do that if it was another illness. We, mm. We, mm. And we, as I said, need to follow this um, mantra of what we do for cancer. We don't wait mm -hmm. till you have stage four cancer mm -hmm. before we come in and say you're going to get treatment. Mm -hmm. The real challenge for us in the next generation is really moving upstream embedding mental health in every public school in our country for 
you know, um, online, you know, mental health care, uh, reimbursed by Medicaid, and also embedding social emotional learning in our school curricula, because if kids can't mediate their emotions, they, they do not know how to cope and have those strategies, uh, they're not going to be able to learn numeracy, literacy, history, anything else that our education system is designed to impart to them. And furthermore, they're not going to be successful human beings. So we need to start putting a premium on early um, intervention, going upstream on mental health across the board. Of course, we've got to reform our criminal justice system, which has tragically just become a substitute for a lack of mental health and addiction system. And and of course, we need to integrate mental health and addiction care throughout our healthcare system, which is still a tough slog. So there's a lot to do, but hopefully your listeners are um, ready to take it on because we need to take it on in every state in this country, mm-hmm. you know, and some states are making greater progress than others. And then they become models for other states. And yeah. so it's not always happening on the federal level. You know, in many cases, a lot of the innovations happening on the local level. So everybody keep keep fighting out there and trying to fight for justice and dignity for people who suffer from these illnesses. You've been very open about your own addiction, and um, there was an interesting part in the book where you were voting on more enforcement money for the DEA to crack down on on some of the drugs, and then you had a pocket full of Oxycontin, which you were like, yeah, you were like, so um, I know you've gotten some grief from the family when you came out and talked about this initially. Um, What do you think, do you think it was just easy at the time to get prescriptions from doctors, and, and, you know, is that been really the source of the problem? Well, I'll tell you, I'm I'm glad I got recovery 10 years ago before really fentanyl hit the scene because I was buying Oxycontins off the street, which were mm-hmm. really just made somewhere, who knows with what. Mm-hmm. And uh, in addition to getting them prescribed for me, and of course, at that time, we had, it was prior to prescription drug monitoring programs, so I could go and shop at any number of pharmacies and get any number of doctors to write for me, and there was no way for the healthcare system to know about it. Um, you know, it's kind of like someone with alcoholism going to a million different, uh, you know, liquor stores because they don't want the person to think that they're mm-hmm. alcoholic. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. the, the, the thinking around this mm-hmm. is so distorted, but that's the nature of addictive thinking. Um, the point I want to make in that story I told in my book, A Common Struggle, is that opioids, um, I mean, it doesn't matter whether they're prescribed or you buy them off the street, they have the same impact on you. So there's not good opioids and bad opioids. There are opioids and mm-hmm. opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we just need to be wary of addictive industries that profit on getting people hooked and getting people addicted. And as you know, we have a lot of addictive industries. You know, Purdue Farm is now being held liable justifiably for their criminal behavior, really, in, in knowing full well that the data was out there showing the vulnerability of many patients to these uh, uh, drugs to become addicted, and they just squashed it across the board, and they pumped up the sales in order to make their profits. We're going to see that with um, uh, commercialized marijuana. Mm-hmm. Nothing like the marijuana I smoked when I was little, or mm-hmm. one, two, three percent tops. Um, this marijuana is in the 20s, 30s, and all the way up to 90s in concentration of THC, and plus it's coming in foods that we eat, cookies, Mm -hmm. gummy bears. Mm -hmm. It's coming in drinks like Mm -hmm. Fanta Grape Aid Mm -hmm. and Orange Aid, THC, even infused in beers Mm -hmm. uh, through the deals that um, 
the cannabis industry has done with Constellation Breweries. It's just beyond your imagination. And, um, and not to mention, you know, the cannabis industry is heavily involved with Juul, which is now being run by Marlboro Cigarettes, you know, mm. Altria. Mm-hmm. So why should we be surprised that there's a new big tobacco? Because there's money around that. Mm-hmm. And just don't let anyone fool you that this is they're doing some kind of major favor for minorities by decrim. Well, no, they're not even decriminalizing. That would have been the proper way to address the uh racial bias in our criminal justice system with the war on drugs is to decriminalize. No, they're they're making it a commercial industry, which means now the most vulnerable populations are going to be subject to the advertising um, by this new addictive industry. I think it's very dangerous. Of course, you have other addictive industries that are targeting people. And we as a society are really laying down now. And and I, I worry for our kids. I've got five of them mm. under 12. And mm-hmm. uh I just uh, think that we're not doing enough to, uh, you know, help them, protect them as they're going into life with, uh, you know, as much protection as we can give them. And, you know, we're letting them fall prey to all these addictive industries. I think it's it's very dangerous for our future. And you joined forces with former House Republican Speaker Newt Gingrich, and you formed advocates for opioid, opiate recovery. We had uh, Dr. Andrew Kalodny on a couple weeks ago from Brandeis University, and he's been really pushing to rein in what he considers the overprescription of opioids. And one of the things, we got a little blowback from people who say, hey, they suffer from chronic pain, and this crackdown is causing them not to be able to to get pain medication. Where's that whole prescription you talked about when you were, you know, using, you were able to get these prescriptions. They were, they were a little more, I guess, liberal out there. Um, has it gotten better? Um, and what about these people who say, Hey, we need this medicine? Yeah, no, listen, there's real pain. People are suffering. That's real suffering. And we need powerful medications and opioids are one there. There are going to be new lines of, of, uh, a pain medication that are not going to have the huge uh, risk of addiction. I think I don't think you can uh, reduce that to zero, but we, we have a lot of good research that shows us there can be new mechanisms of action to treat pain, reduce the uh, um, risk for addiction. We ought to be pursuing all of that, but we ought to be making sure that there's, you know, we know what percentage of the population is suffering from like acute end stage, you know, mm-hmm. cancer. Uh, pain or other kind of Mm -hmm. uh, situations, Mm -hmm. we shouldn't be, as a market, selling more than the population of patients that are exhibiting those justifiable needs for those medications. So um, I think that's our goal. And I don't think it's beyond our reach to make sure the people that need it get it and then no one else does Mm -hmm. uh, for their own benefit. Because um, in my case... um, you know, getting treated with an opioid is, is, is deadly. Um, mm. And I've been to the ER just a few times in the last couple of years because of small injuries. And they're ready to give me that Oxycontin or Percocet without blinking an eye. And that's after I say that I'm allergic to mm. not only penicillin, but I'm allergic to opioids. And, mm. and these nurses and docs, they don't even, it, it, they don't even know what language I'm speaking when I mm-hmm. say that because they're not um, acculturated and educated to the real uh, threat of addiction um, to healthcare, 
and the fact that we don't as a society take it as seriously as we should. So there's a great new book out, Patrick Radden Keefe, and it's the uh, the biography or I guess the history of per- Purdue Pharma, who you noted were uh, criminally convicted for um, their spread and their pushing of OxyContin. And he has a pretty interesting section because he talks about the history of mental illness and talking even going back to the Middle Ages, you know, people were considered demons, some were burned as witches. And, you know, we went through the middle of last century where people were committed and there was operations and there were, you know, and now we're kind of moving in with the medication like Prozac. That's That's been a game changer for a lot of people. Where do we have to go in, in terms of the treatment of the mentally ill? Well, we are learning more and more about the human brain every day. And, you know, President Kennedy launched the race to outer space I think now we need to take that same supercomputing capacity that we developed to put a man on the moon, return him safely and develop our space program and put it into the race for inner space. And that's the galaxy of our neurons and how our most complex computer in the world, which is our human brain, works and how to better intervene and which response responders respond which way and how can we shut off certain gene, you know, indicators that put us at greater risk here and there. I think all of that is possible with the proper investment. And uh, I would like us to to do a much better job at, at personalizing mental health care because many people have their mental health care is driven by you know, uh, inadequate, you know, dopamine or mm-hmm. other neurotransmitters mm-hmm. in their brain. You can mm-hmm. test for that. Yeah. And uh, you can also test for how they metabolize medications because some they, they uh, metabolize well and others they don't. And, and that makes a difference on whether the medication's effective or not. We could just basically what I'm saying, do a lot better on, uh, you know, the neuroscience at the base of this and the uh, pharmacogenics is what they call the alignment of the right med for your type of mental health deficit, if you will, because everybody has different kind of aspects of, of where their problem lies. And just like in healthcare, you do a complete diagnostic in order to know how to best treat someone. Right now, you know, we take a behavioral measure when in fact we ought to be doing not just a behavioral measure, we ought to be doing a genetic test. We ought to be doing metabolomic tests. We ought to be testing a lot of other things to give us a better um, angle on what are the best treatments for them. Because some of those treatments may be chemical and, and, and many of those treatments may also be behavioral, mm-hmm. but it's really the combination of the two that's gonna make the greatest difference. Now, you, you mentioned prisons, and I wanted to chat to you about that. And when I left Congress, um, covering Congress, I ended up working for the Maryland prison system a, a bit. And a third of the uh, inmates there had were on some kind of psychiatric medication. And there were instances where there were people in there with mental illness who were housed there because there weren't enough psychiatric beds available. What do you think is the solution or at least the the progress we can make in terms of the mentally ill being housed in prisons? Uh, well, there's no question that uh, a lot of our budget in the criminal justice are the police time, the adjudication time, the incarceration time, the, pr- the uh, probation time, all eat up a lot of taxpayer dollars that would better be spent taking care of people so they have stable housing, stable medication, a place to go where they can connect with their peers and friends 
And that that's really the vision of the Community Mental Health Act that JFK wrote about, you know, 60 years ago. And it's relevant for our, our um, paradigm shift today. We need new, we need more bed capacity. There's no question about that. But as is in the case with most of these mental illnesses, we need to have a spectrum of coverage so that if people are really cute, they have the bed, but we have to have other services to ideally keep them out of having to go to the bed if it's possible. And in many cases, it is possible if we uh, try to just get people what they need. Um, And of course, they're not going to get any stability if they don't have a stable place to live. Um, If they're not getting decent, you know, nutrition and uh, if they're not getting their basic needs met. So we spent a lot of time medicalizing this when it should just be like, how do I take care of what Mm -hmm. you're problems are right here, right now, because that's going to include medicine, but it's also going to include a lot of other things that will dramatically reduce the cost of medicine and the cost to society in so many other ways, like I said, in the criminal justice space. Do you think the judicial system needs to do a better job of determining who has mental illness? Well, we need to follow like evidence-based sequential intercept models where you know, we, we ideally address this pre-adjudication. We did that in Rhode Island. We had the highest op tempo for our military police in Afghanistan and Iraq. We're, um, we're part of our National Guard in Rhode Island. And, and not surprisingly, after the war, there were a lot of police officers uh, getting in co- conflict with their own law enforcement because they had untreated post-traumatic stress and TBI. And until we set up a veterans court, until we got ahead of treating their illnesses, they were falling like everyone else does into the criminal justice system. And it was so great to see our law enforcement community and the, uh, the justice community step forward and say, you know, we need mental health courts, we need veterans courts, we need drug courts, we need to make sure we don't get people like locked in the criminal justice system, but we, we get them the treatment they need. And of course, you know, having the criminal justice as a as a lever in a, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of an enforcement lever Mm -hmm. to get people to choose treatment, which in many cases, when they're active in their illness, they need that. I know a lot of people wouldn't be sober today if it weren't for the long arm of the law requiring Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. to get treatment. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing. But Mm -hmm. I think that we can do that much more upstream and um, only use uh, the criminal justice system, the, the, the prisons and jails as a last resort. You've been very generous with your time. And I just want to ask you, what can our listeners, individual listeners, do to make an impact on this issue? Well, there are so many good organizations starting out trying to develop strategies, whether they're, they're philanthropy, if they can give, they should know mindful philanthropy, uh, the, the outlines like the United Way, all kinds of different ways they can make a difference. In their city government, town, county, state government, there are lots of policies in each of those branches of government that they can help um, advance. And of course, federally, um, they can advance a a whole lot of policies that can move this into a greater area of priority for our nation. Everybody's impacted by this. We need systems change, as I said totally in our education system because 75% of mental illnesses occur before age 24 in our criminal justice system, which, you know, wastes so many dollars when those dollars could be better going to treating people and keeping them stable. 
and and in our workplace where too many people are not able to to really function effectively and, and, and productively because their employer doesn't cover mental health in the course of their uh, workplace. And I mean, I could just go on and on and we just need more mental health and addiction that's done right. And I think people would have greater faith in the system when they see the results. And I know that there are great results if we get people the right treatment at the right time. And that's the faith we have to have. I had a chance to read your book, uh, Common Struggle, in which you very openly talked about your own struggles and your family struggles. And you did a, a very great job in reporting on the facts and in, in, the, in the statistics on it. Um, and I would recommend that um, to all our readers who are interested in this subject. Um, I understand you're also doing a podcast? Yeah. So I co-founded a company called Psych Hub. And Psych Hub is the, the largest online digital library of micro videos teaching people about their mental health and any diagnosis that they're given, in addition to trying to improve the skills and evidence-based practices of those who are in the uh, provision of mental health treatment, as well as the rest of the medical profession who needs to learn a lot more about mental health. And we're looking to be very disruptive. And uh, it's called PsychHub. Dot com. So encourage people to check it out. Well, I want to thank you for your time. It's really good to catch up with you, my friend, and I uh, wish you a whole lot of luck in um, in your efforts and your advocacy, and I commend you for it. Um, and uh, hopefully um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see some great results because, as you say, it is an issue that affects one out of four Americans in some way. So uh, we thank you for your efforts and appreciate you spending your time with us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. I'd like to thank our executive producer, Mike Gugad, and of course, our technical producer, Brad Maybe, the Wizard of Pods, our announcer, Dave, and contributing voice talent, John Wontake Terzis, the voiceover Tampa Bay. And we want to thank you, our supporters who have been hanging with us over the last few months. We are completing our 30th episode, and we will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the Front Row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the Front Row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.